Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. We've got a great show. <laughs> I had to laugh at myself. We have, because yeah, I always say we have a great show for you today, and but this time we do, and we're going to teach you some things that you may not have known because if you don't have the life experience that uh, Dr. Otto's had, um, including the book he's written that we're going to talk about quite a little bit. It's, um, it's not, if you haven't had that life experience, you might not even believe it when we start talking about some of the things that he's been through in his life, which is, you know, contemporary. It, it started in the, well, well, and we'll talk about it. Dr. Otto, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We had a great time last time, and uh, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have fun here today as well because you are number one. You're a medical doctor. You've been in practice for a very long time. Well, I shouldn't say very long time. Well, I, I think that's appropriate. Forty five years is a very long time. Well, that's it. Does qualify, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and what was your, what was your uh, specialty? Were you a GP or especially it was, uh, anesthesiology. Oh, I love anesthesiologists. Yeah. A lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> you, make, you make me feel good. And I yeah. tried, you know, I've, I've had, uh, well I've, well, I've had, you know, probably seven or eight surgeries and I try and I really, really try to stay awake. And oh, you mean to fight the anesthesia? To fight the anesthesia, and it yeah. never works. <laughs> no, no, it's, not unless they give you uh, the wrong thing. Well, you know, which, which has happened about once in a million cases where uh, anesthesiologists didn't turn on the, the appropriate uh, uh, anesthetic gas and something, you know, and the patient remembers everything. Those are horror stories. I probably shouldn't even talk about them. But it's only, it has never happened to anybody that I know. I've only read about it, you know, like in medical journals, reports about cases that, that happened. So I guess it can happen. Oh, I have a um, an assistant. She's She works out of the Philippines. Uh-huh. And she has wisdom teeth that needed to come out. And one of the wisdom teeth was wrapped around the bone as will happen sometimes with a yeah. wisdom tooth. And then, then they, so what they have to do is they have to take the, they have to cut the wisdom tooth in half and then take it out from around the bone and kind of shave the bone a little bit. And so, this is you describing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and so she told me about what was going to happen. And I said, Oh, child, I'm so sorry. That's that's good. Did she do it under anesthesia or with no anesthesia? Then they they gave her Novocaine and they did wow. not have her under while they were take doing this procedure. And it was like, I oh, that's I, I, I that is like torture. I can't imagine that. Yeah, because um, well, number one, she she probably didn't feel anything if they did an adequate injection. But just having your mouth open that long can be. Uh, uh, and hearing all the drama, you know, hearing what's going on in the room, uh, if the surgeon, if the dental surgeon goes, "Oops, <laughs> that's, that's a bad sign," <laughs> you know. I, I, I had, I had, a, I had a uh, um, a doctor say that during my vasectomy. Oh my! 
Oh. That's <laughs> he's, he said, I was asking him more questions about, about what, what the mistake was. Yeah, he said, he said, uh, he said, oops, damn it. And I said, you know, based upon where you're operating on, I really wish I, you wouldn't say stuff like that. Right. right. That's a word that should be banned in surgery. You know, you can't say oops uh, or other things that imply the same thing. Exactly. And it, it was so. And, and then, you know, so I'm glad you do what you do because you help people not be in pain. You just reminded me of a, of, a, of a joke, and I don't know why I want to tell you this joke, but, you know, during, during the time that patients are asleep, there's always somebody in the room who wants to tell jokes. Usually it's the surgeon, and usually yeah. it's not funny. But anyway, but we laugh anyway. But this one, uh, he says, uh, he did this to a new tech. He did it right in front of me for the first time. It was a tech had just, just out of school and, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, was in surgery, and he said, uh, Pass me the Henway. And he said, what's the Henway? He said, I don't know, three or four pounds. <laughs> hold on, hold on. That's funny or not. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I cracked up at the time. I mean, I couldn't stop laughing because I'd never heard that joke. And of course, the, uh, the uh, OR tech, uh, just fresh out of school, was completely flustered, you know, because he was trying to figure out what, what is a Henway? And then it was a joke. So he, he tended to relax a little bit after that. Now, I, I, I have to ask you this. Yeah. Just because it's how you know, you think these are the things you think about when you're going into surgery. It's like um, I was going to have a colonoscopy. And mm -hmm. so, you know, you have a colonoscopy and, and you know, they turn you on your side and, and there's, in my case, there were two really pretty young nurses that were in the, in the room. And then of course the anesthesiologist comes in and they knock you out. I've always wondered, wanted, wondered if anybody makes comments about, oh man, he's really fat or, or he's really endowed or, or, <laughs> and, you know, any of, any of those things while the patient is out just to kind of, um, be, be funny. Uh, I take the fifth. <laughs> a, a very wise because like, like you just see it if, if one of the, if when they take the sheet off one girl goes oh my god look at that anyway so i but the, so what, what really kind of happens you know when you when you're in the operating room normally you're in with people that you work with like on an everyday basis you know for a long period of time and you get to know the surgeon, the surgeon knows the anesthesiologist, you know the tech. So the conversations are totally about things other than the patient and medicine. I mean, you know, people are telling jokes, they're talking about what they did last night, what they did the night before, a new guy, that, you know, some of the young girls, a new guy they met. And I can remember, now I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I remember um, there was one lady there uh, who was uh, wanted to be OR tech. And she mentioned that at night she danced. And so when we said dance, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, something like uh, on Dancing with the Stars or something like that, you know, that kind of dance. But she was talking about as a stripper. <laughs> so, so the tech, the male tech asked for a demonstration. So while the surgeon was out of the room, she had him lay on the, the table <laughs> and, and demonstrated her. her uh, and she was there. She hadn't, um, she hadn't got the job. 
but everybody in the, <laughs> we all voted yes. Let's hire him. But he didn't hire him because I think we heard what had happened. But <laughs> now, now that's that can be the title of your next book: lap t- lap dance in the in the OR. <laughs> that would be an interesting book. Yeah, and, and, and you know, you probably could get. Um, between me and uh, a lot of other anesthesiologists, you probably could come up with a lot of good, interesting, interesting uh, stories. Oh, no question about it. No question. Because yeah. you guys are everybody. I had a friend who was a doctor. He explained to me that and when you get to a certain point, the patient is like a car. You don't think of it necessarily. You'll think of it as a machine um, that right. is broken and that, that, that you need to fix it. And so you look at doing step eight through whatever to fix the machine you don't necessarily look at them as a sexual being or or whatever it is exactly exactly you're dealing with the uh with the diseased organ in the case of surgery because that's normally why you operate either you're repairing something or you're looking for something that may be uh diseased you know uh, uh, a bad gallbladder a bad pancreas or whatever, you know, stomach ulcers. So, so yeah, generally speaking, you're focused on that. And you, and no one really sees the patient's face because every, all the, the, the drapes and the curtains and, and everything's isolated except the spot that you're going to operate on. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was interesting when I had, I've had both my hips replaced uh, mm-hmm. in full disclosure. And uh, the first time they used, um, and I want to get your take on this one because the, the anesthesiologist and the anesthetic that they used for the second one was radically different than the first one. The first one was just a general anesthetic, and then you had to go to uh, recovery, and then you would take a couple hours to wake up and that, that kind of stuff. The second one, they did a um, – oh, what's it when they, they do an injection in your low back? Uh Epidural, ep, ep, epidural. Yes, they did yeah. an epidural. Oh, Depends. Yes. Is it spinal, spinal anesthesia or epidural? And so they they did one of those because they they injected into my low back, and then they they used a very light anesthetic, um, so that I wasn't I wasn't deeply down or under, but I was under enough that I wouldn't wake up when they were sawing my hip apart, and mm-hmm. and and stuff. But I woke up. And we were still in the operating room. Yeah. Um, so, had, you know, a spinal epidural, most likely an epidural anesthesia, which lowers your pain from about the waist down. You don't feel anything. Yeah. And it's probably the best. And when I, when I was in practice uh, and doing those kind of surgeries, it was considered the best uh, anesthetic for that kind of surgery. In addition to giving you anesthesia for the surgery, you can inject uh, medication early and leave the uh, thing in for a while uh, where it can uh, give a, a narcotics and stuff like that into the spinal thing, which works to relieve pain for long-term, long-term management. And also they have a, a thing that where you can self-administrate this stuff. It's called PCA, patient control analgesia. So it's all kind of uh, uh, different methods they've, they, uh, they've come up with to manage uh, pain to make it more comfortable. As time goes, medicine, you know, gets better and better. We're able to operate on things we couldn't operate on. And, 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 and in addition to that, uh, pain control becomes, uh, becomes better. I really, I really enjoyed the, um, um, the, the button that it's that, you know, it's by your bed and, and you can self-administer. Right. That's what I was talking about. Patient control analgesia. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it, it was it was kind of like it was kind of like taking a shot of vodka or something, and and then you wait a couple of minutes, and that wasn't enough. So <laughs> taking a yeah, taking another hit off the machine, and I was sad when they took that away. But yeah. Anyway, and, and enough of that. You you have been you did that for forty five years, but now you're an author. Yes. And you've talked about a writing. Um, for I imagine for a while you've got a great book out. And when did when did the book come out? The book came out officially February fourteenth of this year, two thousand twenty-three. And have you gotten any res- any uh, returns yet? From I know that takes a while, and they and they say just be patient, just be yes. patient. Yes, I've gotten a lot of great reviews, a lot of great feedback, uh, a lot of friends calling me who uh, have read the book. It's, it's interesting that some people are just now reading the book. It's been out since February. But I get these phone calls about uh, uh, they have similar experience or uh, especially people I grew up with. They'll say, yeah, I remember that. I remember when that happened. I remember that happened. Even people that I've, I've, uh, I've met since I arrived in L.A., which was in the 1970s, <clears throat> they um, they uh, and, and there's some stories in there about. In fact, the book ends in 1986 when I was uh, turning 40. So, uh, uh, and that's why it says the second, uh, first edition, um, because um, if I write the next edition, it'd be another 40 years added to that. But, um, but yeah, it ends, ends when, uh, when, I, when I turned uh, 40. And, uh, and there's a lot of stories in there that, um, I mean, that, uh, uh, the, the, what was, you asked me why did I take up writing? I'm trying to get back to the original question. So I, I, um, I, uh, um, I'd had to stop at forty because I think I told you because I had written up about a, a nine hundred pages. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, and, uh, if, I, if I write another, if I write another forty years, that'd be another nine hundred pages, and I have eighteen hundred pages, and nobody's going to read all of that. So I had to well, stop and go back and. The final book is about 275 pages. So that's that's why another book, and, and you have to write. You you just have to write because, uh, as a, as we talked about the first time, is that you have lived in a time that very few people have lived with the amount of change, especially when you were a little boy, and you could not go to the white drinking fountain. Yes, uh, you know, and you couldn't sit in the counter. You you had you couldn't ride the bus where you wanted to sit. They told you where to sit, kind of. So you were you were part of that 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 period of time, come, moving forward. Um, and in fact, the the title of your book, which people are saying, well, tell us the title of the damn book, would you please? And so the <laughs> the, the, the title of the book is "Are You Now?" This is uh, um, this is not regulated by the FCC. So I, I, I can say what you meant. Is, is, is it all right if I use that word? Oh, well, uh, I guess so. <laughs> I'm always afraid to use it because there's so much uh, stuff out there, you know. Well, okay, I, uh, then, then I'll, just, I'll just say, are you a N-word or a doctor? Yeah. And it's a memoir of a mem, 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 I can't even say memoir. Memoir. <laughs> Thank you. memoir. I'm not, right. I'm not French, so I don't, so... And I like it because it's volume one. You were already anticipating volume two. Yeah, that's what I was talking about a minute ago, that I, I started writing this. And, uh, you know, when I got to 40, I'd written so many pages that I had to take a break. And I decided maybe I should wait and do a volume two. That's sort of how that happened. 
yeah. think you should. I th because so much has happened if it stopped in the 80s and so yeah. much has happened with, you know, including the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and and the, the numbers of people that have been killed and and the, the, all of all of that swirling around our society. It really needs to be talked about, I think. Yes. And uh, it's sort of like, you know, you have that old thing to say history repeats itself. Well, some of the things in there have been repeated. For example, you know, my mother was born and raised in Selma, Alabama, at a time when the population of Selma was probably around 10,000. The black population was probably what we call colored at the time. It was probably around 3,000. At age 12, my mother was uh, raped by a 23-year-old friend of the family, and she uh, became pregnant. And, you know, you didn't have the option of abortions. I won't go into the entire story of what happened. I was born when she was 30, but uh, she had two kids, one at 13, one at 16. The husband left when she was about 18 or 19, and he was 23 when that happened. And, you know, in a small community of 3,000, they were forced. And, and of course, uh, the, the option of abortion was not on the table because there was no... Um, uh, uh, no, uh, uh, abortion, abortions were illegal. And, and it's funny thing. I mean, it's just total coincidence as I was writing that story, or as I finished the story, I'm getting ready to publish the book. That's when, uh, uh the Supreme court reversed uh, Roe versus Wade. And, and so I often wondered, and one of the questions I ask in, in that story is if, you know, cause our parents made, made them get married, both, both parents, his parents and her parents. Um, but the question would arose, would, would that have been a different outcome if she, if it had happened today? But then today, all of a sudden became yesterday, 1926, <laughs> you know, when this happened to her, because uh, of, of, uh, now they don't have the option to have uh, an abortion legally in some states. So uh, that was a question. And that was just pure coincidence. And some other incidents, you know, just the other day, uh, two days ago, they had a, um, you know, President Biden had a memorial unveiled for uh, Emmett Till. Yes. Well, I have a chapter in the book that's called, um, it's about Emmett Till, uh, Jet Magazine, and uh, the, those four girls that were killed in the, um, in the bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963. And uh, in that story, uh, I mean, yeah, in that yeah, in that particular story, I talk about uh, the Emmett Till thing and how it affected me, in particular because I was selling. Uh, my my mother grew up in Selma. The founder, uh, the founder's wife, the uh, of, Jet, of Jet and Ebony magazine, Eunice Johnson. The founder was uh, I think it was Robert Johnson, but the the uh, uh, his wife was Eunice. She was a high school classmate of my mom's in Selma. So when she, when they were first promoting uh, Jet and Everett magazine, I think they, it was first published in like 1945, 46, something like that. But around 1950, 51, she called my mom to, uh, to help her get the Ebony uh, and Jet distributed. So my father became a, a distributor of Jet and Ebony in, um, in uh, uh, Birmingham. One of the distributors, not the only one. But um, so he, uh, so I had a Jet and Ebony route. And as I was delivering a jet, uh, that that I don't know if you know this or, or, or learned about this, but uh, at the time, uh, Jet Magazine was the only publication in the world that published a photo 
of the uh, abused uh, body of Emmett Till. And that photo changed the direction of the civil rights movement, or at least got more people involved and more sympathetic, changed a lot of things. But at the time I was selling it, I was, I was, I can remember being so enamored by the photo that I'm trying to figure out because he was so mutilated, his body was so distorted. I'm trying to figure out how he looked. And then that, on the next page, there was a photo of him before all this happened. And I yeah. could see the difference. But in that instance, I was pretty proud of, of the fact that I was distributing jet and delivering jet to, 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 to customers there and whatnot. Uh, and that, that, you know, that had a, now I was only 10 years old when that happened. It was 1955, 56, one of the two. I think it was 55, it might've been 56. And uh, that had a, and at the same, and then, you know, you flash forward six years later, uh, seven years later, 1963, the girls were bombed. I was a sophomore at Howard University in Washington, D.C. at the time, but I knew all those girls. I knew their their parents. I knew their their, their sisters and brothers. Uh, I knew their grandparents. And one of the grandparents, uh, one of them, lived, the, the grandparent lived like out my back door. I could look over to the right, look far away, but I could see their backyard. And I used to see that little girl um, drive, you know, driving her tricycle around in a cemented part of the backyard. And then uh, to hear this story from him about what happened, uh, and I, I and it's covered in that particular chapter where I go home for Christmas six years later in 1969, and I run, uh, Mr. Pippin, who was the owner of the cleaners across the street from the church, um, and he was working in the church at the time. Anyway, he was at the house uh, for a, a Christmas party, and he... This was six years later, but he started talking about what had happened. We were in a conversation first. He was asking me about med school because I was in medical school at the time. And then the conversation drifted to that one-on-one -on -one conversation. And he went through what had happened as if it had just happened the day before. And what reason he was even more upset because nobody had, at that point, nobody had been charged for this, uh, for that, uh, uh, that crime. And, um, uh, and then, uh, just about five years ago, or six years ago, just about five years ago, I, I was in Howard, uh, in Washington, D.C., went to the African-American Museum, <clears throat> and there was a photo of Mr. Pippin, a huge photo, must have been 18 by 20 or something, huge, of him uh, in agony, you know, crying, uh, face distorted, uh, and uh, and I knew exactly why. Because it, it explained it, had a little uh, thing underneath where it explained what had happened. But I knew what had happened because that was the morning that he came out. He was supposed to attend. His cleaners was across the street. Windows blown out. He ran across the street. He was supposed to attend at 11 o'clock. This happened about 10.30 at 11 a.m. And about 11 o'clock, he was supposed to go to a um, uh, service that his uh, uh, the, those four girls were supposed to participate in. In fact, that's why they how they ended up killed at the same time because the the 19 sticks of dynamite <clears throat> was placed right underneath where they were changing clothes to go into their robes to go to this particular performance. And so uh, he discovered, the, and they were piled on top of each other. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible thing that he described to me. And I, and I never forgot that day uh, of him uh, describing what, what had happened. Now, I want to, I wanna, because of the fact mm -hmm. that in some cases and in some areas, history is being 
for lack of a better term, whitewashed and is not being led to be what truly happened. Emmett Till was, now tell me, you know, I know you know the story, but tell me if I'm, if I get this right. He was a young man, he was in his teens, and he was accused of talking to a white woman or doing something with a white woman. He was accused of whistling. He was accused of doing a wolf whistle. Oh, he was, he was, so he was gonna, he, he, even if, even if that is accurate and he whistled, this is America and you're allowed to do that. But, um, so he was taken by some, by some vigilantes or, or some KKK members or whoever they were. And then he was beaten to death and his mother. And thrown in the Tallahoochee River. Yes. And and his mother, who had incredible courage all by herself, rather than putting him in a coffin and closing the door because he was beaten so badly, she made it a point to keep the, the coffin open so that people, the media, other folks could see what savagery one group of people could do to a 15 year old or 60, whatever he was, 15 years, yeah. a, young, a young boy. And, and that was, and you're right, that, that really changed because when you start putting a face on these things, mm-hmm. um, it, rather than it being, you know, cause you can, you can talk about, uh, um, and I've heard it said that many, many men got, many black men were lynched um, in the, in the South. And you say, Oh, you know, a hundred people got lynched. Well, unless you're looking at them and you're, and you're feeling their pain and what's going on with them and their family's pain, it's easy to compartmentalize it and to not treat it as real rather than when, when you're, you're lynching somebody and without a trial, by the way, and with, without even going to court and without any justice of the, they just would go and they would lynch somebody. Which means that they, what what was described may not have happened. I mean, we don't know. And uh, the lady uh, who made the accusation, I think recently, uh, I think I, I can't remember now if she retorted what she said. She recanted, I believe. She what she said, and and uh, but she was never punished in any way for uh, making that, ac- that false accusation. Um, well, so many things happened because of the media. You know, uh, for example, we talked about the uh, the four girls in Birmingham. Yeah. But prior to those four girls dying, there have been an average of 50, 40 to 50 bombings a year for the last you know, 20 years, or well, at least 15 years, of uh, black churches and houses and businesses. And it, it, was, it became so common that two things happened. Number one, the media, uh, national media, uh, didn't pay attention to it. In fact, the only time they paid attention to it was when those four girls died. So they didn't pay attention to it. The local media did, uh, especially the black uh, newspapers. And we had two colored newspapers. Oh, well, hold on, folks. We just we just lost Dr. Otto, um, and hopefully he'll come back here in just a sec. Um, we're talking about his book, Are You a, and he uses the N-word, um, or a doctor. He was a anesthesiologist for 45 years. Um, this is a great book. It's volume one. It came out in February. We are going to get more books. He's going to write more books because this book stops when he was 
about 40 in the 19 early 1980s well it's now 40 years later after that so now it's time for him to write the next the next version of that book so that he can get that out because this history that he is talking about um black people not being able to go use a drinking fountain they had whites only places and drinking fountains and stuff like that it is something that in my mind um is beyond comprehension that we did that to uh, to a segment of our society and and that were that were free that were that had the opportunity to to live their lives and we didn't allow them to do that as far as voting rights as far as there was a bunch of other things that that we as a society um need to change and we need to be really aware of those things happening so that um we can make a difference we can we can make a true change and i think dr dr otto's back let me see if i can add him to the stream and he's he's got that little there you go there you are how are you doc are you there can you hear me i am i'm here and i can hear you Oh, I'm so sorry about that. My power, I wasn't paying attention, and the power went off. Well, no, that's that, that's okay. I was just talking about your book and uh, and some of some of the um, historical references you make in it, and the things that that you have witnessed in your lifetime, and and that. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. it just was dawning on me. Do you know that 1980 was 40 years ago? I hadn't thought about that, but if I, I, I know doesn't, in 1985, I was 40. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, doesn't, that, doesn't that just kind of like go, holy mackerel. That would, yeah, I remember I the 80s really well. And you know, you kind of forget that kind of thing. I can remember working in surgery and I'm, and I'm talking to people. You know, if you're working with people every day, you forget how old they are and this, that, and other. But I'm talking to nurses and and other people that are like in their 30s or whatever, and I start saying, "Yeah, I remember 1970. This happened. 1980. This happened." And they say something like, "Doc, I wasn't even born." <laughs> so, oh, do you do you know what's what's really frightening? I got to tell you this. What's really frightening is people that were born after 9/11 are now yeah. voting. They're they are young adults. They're in their early 20s. That's right. That's right. That was, uh, what was that? 2000, 2001. 2001. Yeah. yeah. That's my birthday. Ah, 2000, 9-11. <laughs> yeah, 9-11. So, it, it, yeah. So what do you do? Um, but, uh, do things. <laughs> yeah. not doing, uh, but, uh, you know, cause I wasn't thinking about the 1980s being, being a long time ago, but that's it. It was 40 years ago. I know, you know, even when you say something about what happened in 2000, year 2000, that was a long time. I mean, I, I talked yeah. about the restaurant or something. I said, well, open in 1999, and they go, whoa, that was a long time ago. Well, it didn't seem that long ago to me, but yeah, yeah it was all relative. <clears throat> you know, and there's another, uh, um, now your, yours was a predominantly wing restaurant, right? A chicken wing? No, it was uh, French fries. Oh, French fries, that's right. Right. And you had all kinds of dipping sauces for the French fries. Yeah, we had uh, about thirty dipping sauces. Yeah. Well, now you can go back in business, and they, they you can now do of uh, thirty different styles of chicken wings, and oh. and and stuff like that, and with the different yeah. sauces and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And although I don't recommend, 
I don't no, recommend. I'll never go in the restaurant business again. That was that was that was uh, that was a good experience. I'm glad I had it, but it was really tough. And uh, and I, I have all the respect for restauranteurs, successful rest people who own restaurants. It's a it's a hell of a business, especially especially um, uh, cash businesses. You know, which mine was. Yeah. Well, there's so few restaurants that. Uh, well, I was in the restaurant business for 20 years, Doc, and oh, none of the restaurants. You know what I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, none, none of the restaurants that I ever worked for are still around. Wow, um, there's a reason for that. Yeah, well, I said yeah. the same thing about Dutch food. Have you ever been, seen a Dutch restaurant? No, I haven't. There's a reason for that. <laughs> 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 I don't even know what Dutch people eat. I know, and and you don't want to know. Once you know, I was I was over there the first time I was there. Um, I went to a North Sea Jazz Festival, and I looked up my. Uh, in fact, I write about him in my book because uh, he was my chief resident when I was in Ohio, <clears throat> and I looked him up, <clears throat> and he he told us. Um, he said, "We we'll have to take you to a restaurant, uh, a Dutch restaurant, because you know our tasting is American food type food." And I won't go into the story now, but I just say that it wasn't, I, I put it this way, I'm glad that I was a, a, a fish, what I call a pescatarian, a fishitarian, which is a pescatarian legally, but I was a pescatarian, so I didn't have to eat a lot of this stuff. I'll give an example. Um, my friend that was with me, he's not a, a he's not a pescatarian or, or vegetarian, and uh, he, got, he got him, he said, this is our best dish. And it brought a hamburger bun with a raw hamburger and uh, mayonnaise, and on top of that, a sunny side up egg. In a bun. <laughs> now I know I'm make it. I don't. I don't know who likes that. I guess you know it's a, a Dutch thing. But anyway, that so that gave me a hint of why there's no um, no uh, Dutch restaurants. You know, we have Italian restaurants, we have Chinese restaurants, we have Spanish restaurants. I mean, it's just about everything you can think of. But there's never been a Dutch restaurant I can recall. Yeah, v v there's even Vietnamese restaurants and yeah. and Filipino restaurants and there, there, there's all kinds of, you know, but um, never Dutch. I've never heard of one. No, I might get some 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 social media anger now about <laughs> talking about Dutch food, but uh, I guess it's an acquired taste, apparently. <laughs> apparently so, <laughs> especially eating a raw. You know, I get it. There's some people that, you know, what is it, steak tartare, and they, they right. it's a raw hamburger and, and stuff, and some people seem to like that. But uh, uh, you forgot to cook this, you know, and, <laughs> right. and, and, and stuff. So in, in any event, we're talking with uh, uh, Dr. Otto Stallworth, Jr., M.D., and uh, I understand your dad was quite a guy, and, and, uh, and you've been... Uh, you were a, a doctor for 45 years. You've been in the restaurant business. You were in the music business. You've done a lot of stuff. Yeah, I, I was in the music business for, for a very short time. And uh, there's a chapter in the book that talks about that. It's called um, uh, Taste of Honey. Uh, and the Grammy goes to because they won the Grammy. I, I met them at a wedding. They won the Grammy a year, about a year and a half after I, I ran across the group. And it was kind of uh, just a quick summary of the story. I ran into the group. Uh, at a wedding, they were doing entertaining, and uh, got to know the group, and uh, took people by to see them, and then they asked me to manage them, and I had some connections in the business through classmates and people that I knew socially, and uh, got them a, a record deal, uh, 
And then the first record that came out sold uh, 13 million and was on the chart for 13 weeks. And um, and they won the Grammy for Best New Artist, and they were the first black group in the history of the Grammys at that time, which was 1979. The Grammys have been around about 21 years, and they uh, they were the first black group to win the Grammy for Best New Artist. Now, were you there that night that they announced? I was there that night. It was at Sports Arena, and I can I, I just can't tell you how um, excited I was about that. I was sitting way in the back. And uh, but I they probably heard me all over the auditorium because I jumped up and screamed. I said, "Whoa!" And it kind of you know the thing is it, it was kind of a validation of a, I mean it really felt good because I I had just it, it's interesting how things happen. I had just taken a course at UCLA Night School, uh, uh, what they call extension at that time. I don't know what they call it now, and it was in how to how to make a how to uh, make a record how to. Uh, make an audio tape, a, a demo tape, and get a record deal. And I'd taken that course maybe just about six months before I ran into the group. So I simply went to the book, back to the book, and kind of reread it, and I just went out to do exactly what it said, except we made one change. You know, normally you make a demo tape, an audio tape. Right. And this group, because it was two female, one playing guitar and one playing bass guitar, and they, they were attractive and they moved well and they sang well, uh, I had never seen two female <clears throat> musicians <clears throat> who also sing and and and, uh, and let's sing. So so um, so instead of making an audio tape because I didn't like any of their original music, uh, we made a, a videotape, and that's what I shot to get them a record deal. We took the video the videotape. My, my friend had a producer friend had a, um, a recorder which was about two feet by by three feet. It was huge. And uh, and they had big tapes. They used those big, uh, I think it was ten inch tapes of them. The tapes were like that big, right? And, uh, and we recorded them at the uh, uh, nightclub where they were performing on a Saturday with no audience, and that's the, and I cut it down to like twenty minutes, and that's what we shopped to get a record deal. Uh, you know, I, I was just thinking, you're right, um, because like the Supremes, which were in the '60s. And the uh, the there's another one, Chiffonettes or the uh, yeah yeah something like that. The the well, there's so many of them at that time. You had the had the Supremes, you had Martha and Vandellas, you had uh, uh, a lot of female groups. Uh, None of them played their own instruments. No, and if and Aretha Franklin did play the piano. Yeah, uh, and if there's any female that played an instrument, it was usually the piano or some keyboard type type uh, instrument. So this was a very unusual thing, and uh, and I think that's why it happened. In addition to that, I think it happened because she had written a great song, and 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 we had great producers that brought their own uh, brought their experience uh, to make the song. Uh, uh, popular uh, uh, sound. I think that even if you li listen to that song now, it's called Boogie Oogie Oogie. If you go listen to it and just really have some good speakers and listen, uh, our headphones, you'll hear the nuances that are in that song that was just incredible, you know, in terms of the sound and whatnot. And I think that's why the song did so well. And, I, I and, uh, oh, go ahead. Hmm? Pardon? No, no, go ahead. Yeah. Well, that, that was basically it. That, uh, that, uh, uh, I could talk all day about that subject, you know, because I wrote a whole chapter on it, but I don't want to just 
take up all your time with that. Oh, you're not you're not taking up any of my time, young man. All you're doing is giving me an opportunity. Oh, and, and you know to uh, to do this. So I'm going to I'm going to do this so that we can. Well, first of all, I got to ask you. It sold 13 million copies. Did that set them up for life back then? Pretty pretty much because um, they never had another hit record. They had one uh, that made the charts, but never had another hit record. And they they all are doing pretty good from that. You know, the group broke up a little bit after that, too. You know, it's a tough business. They were all young, 18, 19, 20. And when you uh, when you have success that early, especially in the entertainment business, and you have no uh, skills about managing your money and you're a little naive about this, a little naive about that, uh, things happen, you know. Um, uh, so uh, that's... So you have to admire someone who who has you know every career goes like this. It's a bell curve, you know. It goes up and then it comes down. Some go up and down, which was the case of Taste Honey, and others go like this. And but eventually they do go down, and some go up and down and back up and back up. Um, so it it just depends where you fall in on that spectrum. You know? Well, hold on, hold on. Let's see. Oogie. Yeah. Oogie. Um, I'm, I I had it up and I screwed up. I got it because I I wanted I wanted to play this because I think people would enjoy it. So it's boogie, boogie, boogie. Uh, boogie. Um. Okay, hold on just a second. I had it. I had it. Now, now this is a, this is a thing going on here. That I'm, let's see, boogie. And let's see, in that one. Okay, that's the one I want. Well, I got it here. If you want to play it. Well, I'm gonna. I want to play it and, and do the video of it too. So. Oh, okay. Now, this is not the original, but this is, gives you a taste of um, of what it, of what it was. So, um, I'm gonna that do that. The I, I I think it's one of them, but I think let's play and see. Yeah, that's JJ. Yeah, JJ is the only one left of the group. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
words. I see your lips moving. Let me hear you. Oh, what have I got to lose you? So is that uh, one of the one of the sisters? Yeah, yeah. The she's the original. Um, <clears throat> JJ is her name. Janice, Janice uh, Johnson. We called her JJ. And at the time, she was when, when I saw them. She had uh, an afro, a huge afro. Both of them. The other girl was Hazel. Hazel Payne. They both had big afros. And then uh, my daughter at the time, um, I, I had John custody. My daughter was. Uh, uh, she was born in 71 and this was around 76 75 and i couldn't uh, i couldn't comb my hair you know when she was with me i had two weeks and my, uh, my mom had two weeks and so i um i found someone to braid it so that I, I couldn't i couldn't brush it i couldn't comb it i couldn't braid it i couldn't do anything so i hired somebody to braid it with those cornrow kind of things yeah and uh and they saw my daughter and the lady who braided their hair became their hair uh, uh, person, and 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 braided. So so when the album came out, if you look at the album cover, they both have uh, long braids with uh, beads and whatnot, sort of like what the Williams sisters used to used to wear. So you created a thing and didn't even know you were creating a thing. You created a thing and didn't even know it. it. It was totally accidental. They just saw the girl, my daughter, and and said, "I want to do that," you know. And uh, her name was Malakia. Malakia started doing her hair and uh, their hair. And then uh, I think uh, Stevie Wonder, I was going to say saw it, but no, he must have heard about it. And he hired uh, Malakia to do his hair. And, he, and she was his hairstylist because, you know, all of a sudden he was doing braids for yep. about the next uh, 20 years or so. Tell, yeah. tell he lost his hair. Now, now the braids are just in the back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's, you know, that happens when we get older. Um, yes, yes. Doctor, it's, it's, you know, it's great. Have you, I got to ask you, have you started work on the second book yet? I want I did start work. And the second book, uh, you know, um, I decided not to write, a, write, a, write away on the memoir. And the reason is because, uh, you know, we haven't talked about a lot of the stuff, but it's 45 chapters. And there's a lot of funny stuff and there's a lot of... Um, emotional stuff and there's some things in there that you know that I had to recall uh, that wasn't so pleasant and when you recall those things you tend to go back and you, you know you tend to really relive that moment so that you experience it emotionally and sometimes it takes you to a dark place uh, you know and uh, so I understand how writers end up a lot of writers end up being big time smokers or alcoholics or other kind of drugs. And it's a, I kind of understand that because you, you know, it's a lot of time you spend alone and a lot of time that you, when you go to these dark places, especially when you're writing about yourself, I think it's when you're writing fictional stuff is a little different, but um, uh, so, so, so I, I, I just wanted to, to avoid that. So I decided to write my next book, I will do the second uh, second follow-up to this, but my next book will be, uh, it was a screenplay that I wrote when I was at, I enrolled at UCLA in 2015 when I first started retiring uh, in the School of Ma the Master of Fine Arts program. I finished a year, I had an illness and I had to drop out, but I finished a year and during that year I wrote a screenplay and it's a, it's a thriller murder, murder uh, story uh, called Murder at Beauty World. And it's about, you know, I spent my last 22 years of, of practice in uh, sur uh, plastic surgery centers around Beverly Hills. Ah. So it's a fictional story at a fictional 
uh, plastic surgery center where a, uh, where a patient dies, a healthy patient, young patient, and the anesthesiologist who gave the anesthesia finds out uh, over a period of time that, that it was actually a planned murder. And so that's what the story is about. Oh, very fun. That's that would be that would be <laughs> that, that would be an interesting story to write. I got to ask you. You know, we haven't talked haven't talked about this part, but then I doubt we're going to talk about this much because I'm sure there are uh, non disclosure agreements and and other stuff about people who came to the Hollywood um, um, Cosmetic Surgery Center. You're oh, probably yeah. not allowed to say who they were and why they were there. No, I'm not allowed to say that, but. Uh... Uh, I'll just tell you, I had a lot of experience and, uh, <laughs> you know, with uh, a lot of different types of uh, surgeries. And, um, and it's, you know, the one thing about one thing, though, about the, the plastic surgery part of it, I'm, I'm glad I did it the last 20 years of my practice, because, you know, the other stuff that you do when you're handling emergencies and and people dying and, and stress and gunshot wounds and traffic accidents and people going into comas and ruptured aortic aneurysms and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, you, you bring that home with you because of that trauma, you know, you feel it, the stress. But the last 20 years was in a uh, with plastic surgery where everyone that comes in is happy to be there. <laughs> I mean, they're not there because they have an injury. When somebody has an injury, they probably think, God, I wish I wasn't here. Why am I in the hospital? You know, I got to get out of here. But for plastic surgery, they'd ha they're happy. They come in happy. They leave happy. They wake up, you know, with twins or whatever, you know, and they everybody's happy. So it's a it's such it's puts you puts me as an anesthesiologist, and I'm sure most anesthesiologists who are in that particular practice puts you in a better mood, and you're around people with a different kind of. It's just a happier environment. I mean, you can imagine when you're sitting around and you're dealing with gunshot wound and somebody's bleeding to death and this and that. It's a totally different vibe. Than 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 uh, than being around uh, everyone who's excited and happy about having that surgery. That was one of the reasons I really liked the restaurant business. I mm -hmm. didn't force anybody by you know pull the gun on them and make them come in the restaurant. They were yeah. all in there to have a good time. All I had to do was fa facilitate their good time. Yes, yes, and and uh, address it in a nice way and say how you doing today and stuff like that and. Anything you need, <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. And I, I've got lots of stories about that. I mean, it wasn't like uh, when I was driving a bus when yeah. uh, they didn't want to be there anymore, and I wanted them to be there, and but they had to go because they had to get around, and that's the only way they could get around. I think you told me that before that you drove a bus. Now, where did you, where did you drive a bus? In Seattle for twelve years. Huh? Because I drove a bus in Chicago for three months. <laughs> yeah, you, you were smarter than me. You got out of that. <laughs> right. That was a that was a hell of an experience. There's a chapter in the in the book called "The Bus Experience." Experience. Yep, we talked about that last time. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just tuning in, you need to get this book. Are you a N-word or a doctor? It's a memoir, and uh, um, Dr. Otto E. Stallworth is the author. Please get the book and uh, enjoy it. It is chock full of great stories you you are an engaging man and you've got a good sense of humor so i imagine the the book has a light feel to it um yeah. but to take that within the con confines of what was going on in society at the time 
it gives you a good idea of what someone who lived through it had to go through. And by the way, the audio book is out. Oh, came good. Out, came, came out June 21st. Now, it's on, you know, it, it, came, it was supposed to be out June 21st. On June 21st, it was every place except Amazon. Amazon is very slow, I guess, about posting it. But it's available at Apple. It's available at Barnes & Noble. It's available at um, even uh, Walmart, which they call it Kobo, I think, is their website. But it's available. It's available everywhere except Amazon. And um, and I uh, I only do the um, the uh, prologue because I didn't have the stamina to do. It would have taken five hours a day for five days uh, five days in a row, and I didn't have that stamina to. And plus, I tended to. After a while, my 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 southern accent, which which is uh, you may be able to detect now, but it even goes more once you get more relaxed. That and I mumble some words and this and other. So I say I can't do this because first of all, I don't know if I could last five hours a day for five days. <laughs> you know that that sounded pretty torturous. So, but the gentleman that I found to do it uh, did a I think did a great job. Uh, he uh, he uh, puts. Uh, Emotion where there should be emotion, and 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 it's not just a dry read. He does a great job, so you know, check it out. Yeah, please, please do. And that is, are you an N-word or a doctor? And and uh, Doctor uh, Otto E. Stallworth is the author. And you know, because I got to tell you, um, doing an audio book, it's it's hard because you first of all you have to read the book. Before, if, yeah. You know, you wrote it, so you know who knew what was in it, but he had to read it chapter by chapter, word by word, so that he could come up with the right inflections and what was being meant by. And so you're interpreting somebody else's work. That's hard. And then the editing process and then doing it, it's it's yeah, it's plus, it, plus there was a chapter in there uh, called Mexico and me. Uh, and so there's a lot of Spanish and I'm not good at pronouncing Spanish. So if I had read it, I would have, I would have, it would have been some horrible pronunciations of the of the Spanish language. Well, so. it, I'm glad. I'm glad it's out. I'm glad this book is out. This book is important, and people need to get it and and read it. And uh, by all means, it needs to go into every library in the country um, because it's an important work and the and um, it's real. And I want to thank you, Doctor, for coming and talking to us again. It's it's been it really is. My total pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I love I love talk, talking to you. It's it's like I'm talking to an old friend. <laughs> you know? I would like to, I, 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 in terms of the age, <laughs> an old friend. I will take that as a supreme compliment. Yeah, uh, because you. I consider you a friend as well, and I want to thank you so much. And I'm I'm going to at one point I'll I'll talk to your uh, publicist about inviting you back. Okay. Sounds good, and we'll and we'll have some more fun. Is there anything that you would like to add that we that needs to be said before we close this podcast? Out? Did, we, did we give my website? So they can I think we to- did not. I think uh, yeah. it's, it's Otto Stallworth uh, Junior Otto e. MD. Otto e. Oh, that's right. Otto e. Stallworth Junior MD. Yeah, and all the information is there that you. Uh, that, yeah, it's just like my name is here, except there's no no space, and uh, uh, and all so all you know if, when you go to that website, everything's there, including the last podcast we did. That's on the uh, on the uh, media section of that page, 
and oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, so and you can check that out. So I mean, yes, please everybody check that out. Get the book. You are you an N word or a doctor? And uh, and there's 45 chapters. There's a lot of funny stuff. There's a lot of serious stuff. There's a lot of uh, information. A lot of uh, I've had some unique experiences that you learn about, and 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 uh, and that's some you know medical stuff. I mean, it goes all. It covers me from from kindergarten, actually from elementary school, all the way up to uh, when I my second marriage, and my first my second child, and it ends there when I turn forty. And you know when you say that there are good parts of it, and there's a little bit of darkness, and there's a lot of levity, and a lot of that's just life, you know. Yes. And, and all exactly. you're doing is 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 giving us a snapshot, a 40 year snapshot of mm -hmm. your life and and surrounding. Did you ever see the movie uh, Forrest Gump? Yes, yes, I did. That was a very great movie. Great storytelling. And we, we, if you haven't seen Forrest Gump, I can't believe you haven't. If you haven't, you need to go see it. But it, your book reminds me of that because what it is is you've got this central character. Then all of history and all the things are moving around him, and as you move through it, um, in in the course of your life. So, um, yeah. it it's very it's a very interesting book. Okay, good. Glad you like it. And um, did you ever get a copy of it? Oh, you said you got it. You you got it. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So so it's it's a great it's a great piece, and I highly recommend it for everybody to get it, um, especially if you're in a place that they're trying to tell you that the history that we know to be true is not true. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to tell us in Florida, at least, and some other places are starting to do the same thing. You know, and what it would be, what would really be, uh, 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 excuse me, what would really be a damn shame is if they tried to ban your book in Florida. It mm. needs to be spoken to. It needs to be out there. You know, some they say sometimes bad. What, how does it go? Uh, bad publicity is better than no publicity. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe I should call them up and say, "Can you pan that book?" <laughs> and then everybody will know about the book. You know, otherwise, <laughs> you know, I'm not famous. I'm not like um, Oprah or, or, or Denzel or, or uh, Matthew McConaughey or anybody like that, where you know you hear the name Prince Prince uh, Prince Harry or whatever. As soon as you see the name, you want to buy the book. They sell so many copies as soon as they publish it because you know because they're uh, they're famous. So a little notoriety wouldn't wouldn't uh, so. I, Maybe you can uh, put in a plea. Please ban uh, this book. Are you a uh, N-word or a doctor? Yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't that doesn't go along with positive talk radio banning books. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's not in, not in my wheelhouse. I'm afraid. Right, um, right. Because I think that every 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 book that is should be out there for people to decide whether or not they want to read it or not. And are, you, are you familiar with the, the book and the movie called Fahrenheit 451? Yes. yes. I mean, I never thought that would come true, but that's sort of like, sounds like where we're headed. You know, banning books, burning books, and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, Going, going back to the 1930s. Yeah, controlling, uh, trying to control what people say or do. Uh, it's a, it's a, it would seem to be going backwards rather than for, forward. 
It is, and that's, and that we'll leave on the table for our next talk because that is an important, and it'll be a little bit closer to the election. So. Right. right. Okay. And then we'll be able to talk about that. But Dr. Otto, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thanks for having me. And you have a good uh, good night and good day and good week. And good I have to. I have to. It's a, it's a rule. So, And you yeah. do the same. If you wait right uh, there, I'll be right back. Okay. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.